I think that criminalization has always just served a very distinct purpose in this country, and that purpose has nothing to do with law and order. If these walls could talk, they tell you about my life. Let's get into the heart of the matter in black and white. No second chances, no opportunities in sight. Cause dreams of escaping is boosting my appetite. What's the American dream? White picket fences, couple kids, couple bands, it's the American scheme. If you're from where I'm from, and they be burying teens and burying dreams. Really some embarrassing things. Institutional change, generational things. Systematic oppression, generational pain. Welcome to the show where we break it down for you, man. Cause if we don't talk about it, then these things will never change. You claim to be an outlier, you really feeling us. But is equality worth that privilege you've given up? Look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself. Is my equality worth that privilege you've given up? Welcome to the heart of the matter in black and white with Essence Revels and Becky Holloway. Today, we will be revisiting the topic of racism in the justice system from the judiciary point of view. All right, so Essence, today we have part two of um, the episode that started a few weeks back, um, how the justice system is rigged when we looked at um, the perspective of law enforcement and the prison system. And today we're, Very honored to have two attorneys with us who are uh, involved with the ACLU and and very involved with advocacy for uh, marginalized people groups and underrepresented communities. So um, welcome CJ and welcome Karen. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor to have you. Thanks for having us. Thank you, nice to be here. So we wanted to start um, by giving you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about what drew you to the legal profession and why you are so passionate about the work you do um, in advocacy for marginalized uh, and um, vulnerable populations. I'll start. Um, It's always sort of a difficult question um, because there's so many reasons, but you know, I grew up in rural Kansas, a very small town of about 2000 people. Um, And we were very, very poor. And so I didn't really know much about lawyers, except for like, you know, watching night court or LA law and that sort of thing. Um, So being a lawyer was not on my radar. I didn't know any lawyers. Um, Actually didn't really know anyone that went to college either, except for my school teachers. So even, you know, initially in my life, I don't know that I saw college as being or becoming a highly educated person as being like on my path, although I was always very smart as a kid. Um, So when I did go to college, it was difficult. I felt like out of place. Uh, It was so foreign to me. I didn't have any guidance. I was also supporting myself financially from the moment that I graduated high school. Um, So I sort of started and stopped a few times and eventually I moved to New York City and I started working in um, social justice orgs. And I was, you know, always sort of as a kid had a very strong sense of like right and wrong and fighting for injustice, uh, for justice and standing up against injustices. Um, and so I was drawn to those organizations and then, you know, working in them and being in a, in a, a metro area, I was started to become exposed to lawyers. 
and realize like, oh, like I, I could be a lawyer. This is what you have to do. You have to get your bachelor's degree first and then you go to law school. And so I did that. I uh, did like uh, night classes and online classes to get my bachelor's degree solely so that I could go to law school. And, um, you know, it really fit my personality because I, I love writing. I love thinking, mm. I love solving problems. I love, you know, all of that. And, um, so, so in that way, it fit my personality, but then I was also able to put together that social justice background with being a lawyer and, you know, just coming from where I come from and knowing how much of a privilege it is to know the law, to know your rights, to know how to interact with the legal system. Um, it's such a privilege. So I've just always in my legal career um, decided that I want to use my law license as much as I can to fight injustice, to make sure that we're creating better laws that better protect the oppressed and people's civil rights and advance justice. So um, that sort of combination of things. <laughs> That's a, that's a really great answer. And I, I love what you say there about privilege to know the law. Um, that's actually something that Essence, you brought up in, in the uh, part one um, about you know, what, what happens to people who get caught up in the, um, in the legal system and don't know their rights and don't have access to people who can help them. So I, yes. I, I know we'll be touching on that a lot. Karen, what about you? I have a little bit different of a path. I, my parents are both, or they, they both passed last year, but they were both um, Jamaican immigrants. And mm -hmm. my grandmother was illiterate. She couldn't read or write. And so my mom kind of really was like ahead of her time and left Jamaica, went to nursing school in England and then came to Chicago. And, um, you know, I was always like CJ into reading and writing and arguing and, um, that was really exciting for me, but I had no idea how that could relate to being a lawyer. Like I didn't really get what lawyers did. Um, and then my sister ended up going to law school and she worked for um, uh, the SEIU as their kind of like in-house person. And I wanted to be a poet. Like I, I moved to New York City and mm. went to graduate school and was like publishing poetry and in a performance studies department at NYU. And then we read this book called The Alchemy of Race and Rights um, by a scholar named Patricia Williams. And it completely shifted my beliefs and thoughts like on, the, on its access. I, I had gone through this whole phase of um, thinking that the ivory tower was gonna help me you know, change things um, because I'd always also been an activist. I'd been in the Lesbian Avengers in New York. I'd done things all through college and, and high school. And I just felt kind of inert in academia and that book just blew everything up. And so I went to law school pretty late at, at 29, which now seems like still very young, but at, you know, mm -hmm. that's much older than most people go to law school. And so I kind of came to it with a whole life experience that I'd done, I'd worked, I'd done many things. And um, I kind of settled in that space. And while I was there, um, I finally got to put some of my activist thoughts and, and beliefs and goals into this legal system structure. And it, um, it really just kind of informed 
how I wanted to have a career and, you know, how I could bring together my personal beliefs and my bread and butter. Wow. Both, both of your stories, the, the, how um, different they are, just the contrast, I just think is, is very interesting. Uh, and it speaks to what drew Becky and I to even do this. And, and if you think of what our show is called, The Heart of the Matter in Black and White, and just listening to how distinctly different both of your paths are, but the passion in the heart that both of you have is what has brought you together. And speaking of that, can uh, both of you speak to what the ACLU is and some, some of the different accomplishments and some of the different things that this um, organization does. And I know that you said that there are chapters in every, all around the country, and you work for the chapter in New Jersey. So please enlighten us. I know that every single sector loves their acronyms. So no one even knows what that means right now. So please enlighten us. Well, first of all, I just want to be clear that um, CJ is on the ACLU of New Jersey's board, um, but she does not work at the ACLU just so because she's doing amazing work through even better. time. <laughs> so it's even <laughs> it's it's great because like we actually get to work kind of under this umbrella together. But um, the, the work that she does is also so unique and phenomenal because of her own mission. Um, but the American Civil Liberties Union. Um, it was founded in the early part of the 20th century and basically in response to something called the Red Summer, um, which was when there was just huge, huge social upheaval. Um, it was kind of post-war, post-first pandemic, um, and there was a whole Red Scare going on. And what was happening was people were being like beaten terribly by the cops and, and um, thrown into prison without due process, without um, being able to make any arguments about their civil rights. And so um, from that, a bunch of people got together and decided that they needed to create an organization that would fight for all people um, to be able to realize the promise of the constitution and to preserve basically individual rights and liberties that the, the laws of the United States are supposed to guarantee for everyone in this country. And so as an organization, that's what we're still tasked with doing. That's what our mission is. And um, as times change, what that means changes, uh, but those fundamental um, things still apply. And, and that is that we are here to ensure that the constitution remains in the hands of all people. Yeah, and I'll just add to that, that um, I've been on the ACLU board of trustees and am the vice president since I think early 2016. Um, but all of the great work that Karen is talking about is done by the staff. The board sort of plays this oversight role. I do, separate from my role as a board volunteer as a lawyer, a cooperating attorney for ACLU. So um, I'm always honored to be able to argue cases or write briefs for the organization. But I, it, my day job is actually working for a law firm called Pashman Stein Walder Hayden. And I run our firm's Justice Gary S. Stein Public Interest Center, um, where we, it's largely a pro bono program. And we, um, do a lot of different pro bono work, but a lot of it is focused on 
issues that are similar to what the ACLU um, handles. So a lot of criminal justice work and civil rights work. Um, so there's a lot of overlap there and partnership. And I have to share a, a brief personal anecdote here. So I, my background, I, I grew up in an extremely um, far right, conservative, evangelical, fundamentalist family. I was homeschooled and very much indoctrinated with a lot of um, ideology, I'm sure you can imagine. And so, you know, I was always told the ACLU is, you know, against us, right? And so it's very funny, the journey I've been on and, and getting to sit here with two, you know, like-minded people. And, um, you know, <laughs> it's just funny, the paths that we're on. So I really appreciate the work that you do with the ACLU. Um, well, I, I think if I can just like yeah, jump in on that, because I, I think absolutely. it's important just to note that when I say that constitutional rights apply to everybody, it applies to everybody. And I think one of the things that um, I think brought the ACLU to public consciousness for the first time was when um, it represented Nazis in Skokie mm. um, in the 80s, because you still, everyone has the right to assemble, you know, everyone has the right to free speech. And, um, you know, that's been hard for a lot of people. Like uh, in Charlottesville, the ACLU was who got the permits for some groups that turned out to be white supremacists and, yeah. um, to be able to march, you know? And so that's that's hard, but that is, um, you know, the, the one of the things that we can, you know, talk about this within the context of the criminal justice system, but, the law belongs to everybody. And if you don't apply it to the people that you despise or the people that you think are the most kind of like low and loathsome in our society, then it's not gonna apply to anybody. Mm, I, I appreciate you adding that. I mean, we we think of the statue of, you know, Lady Justice as blind, right? Holding the scales and and has the, the you know, bandana around her eyes so she can't see. Um, and, you're absolutely right. Like if, if these are rights that we believe all humans have, it doesn't uh, just belong to the people that we agree with, it belongs to everyone. Um, and we'll definitely wanna dive into that a little bit more because that's one of the things that we see doesn't happen within certain communities. Um, so let's, let's pose the question and, and CJ, I'll start with you. Is the justice system rigged in your opinion? And if so, what are the ways that it's rigged? Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question that it's rigged and it's rigged in so many ways that I, I couldn't answer in a short amount of time. <laughs> um, and, you know, you could have a series every day for a couple of years and we wouldn't cover all of the different ways that it's rigged. Um, but, you know, when you look at every single measurable data point at every level of our criminal justice system, whether you're talking about policing or prisons or the judicial system um, or prosecutions, um, every data point shows significant racial disparities, whether it's from who, who police officers are pulling over on highways in cars and which drivers have their cars searched after they're pulled over, um, which drivers are then arrested or who the police officers use force against or who's prosecuted and how they're prosecuted and what their plea bargains are. Um, and, and then of course, like who's incarcerated, uh, you know, their black people are in prisons incarcerated at 12 times the rate of white people in New Jersey, which is I think mm. the worst in the nation. Wow. Um, 
you know, so it's it's every measurable data point, but there's also so many reasons why that uh, why those disparities exist. And of course, like some of it is explicit racism, some of it is implicit bias, but then economic class also plays this huge role in it because we live in a in a society um, with long <laughs> historical uh, racism and um, that has put mo many people of color economically behind white people. And that's true in New Jersey. I think I saw the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice um, tweeted something recently about the net wealth of um, families. And for white families, it was like around $350,000 in net wealth. And for black families, it was around 6,000. And it was uh, just like slightly higher for Latino families. And so um, when you're thinking about entry into the criminal justice system, you know, poor communities and people of color are over-policed. So they will be, um, you know, even if it's something as simple as like a minor offense or traffic offense or, or some sort of minor violation, um, if you receive a ticket for $250 and you can't pay it, it escalates uh, because then maybe you can't go to court, can't afford a lawyer to go to court for you. Um, it escalates, you get a, you, you know, you get uh, late fees on top of that, and then it escalates further, and then you get contempt charges, and then there's a bench warrant, and it just you know, it, it snowballs and snowballs. And, um, you know, that's largely not a problem for rich people um, or upper middle class people. Um, they can afford attorneys. They can afford some of the best attorneys to get better plea bargains. Um, poor people have to use public defenders who uh, whose offices are stretched thin. I mean, there's still amazing lawyers there but they don't quite have millions of dollars to spend on a single case. Um, and Karen can talk more, but there's just, you know, it's it's hard to have this conversation in, a, in response to a single, you know, two or three minute response because <laughs> there's so many layers to the onion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that criminalization has always just served a very distinct purpose in this country and that purpose has nothing to do with law and order. So. Um, it's set up to operate in a very particular way, and it's doing that. And, um, you know, we see that when we have these massive events that kind of reveal a certain kind of criminality and what the reaction is to the populations that are engaging in it. And, and let me just like give a tiny like historical examples. I think it's important to kind of see when we talk about the, the system being rigged, it's important to see how it's operated, I think, in this country for for centuries. And like when I when I think about this, I, I usually think about the Fugitive Slave Act, which I got obsessed with a few years ago. Mm. Um, and it was passed in 1850 um, as part of the Missouri Compromise. If, you know, I can go back to like social studies and middle school. But basically it was passed by Congress and it required that people who'd escaped slavery be returned to their, and I put this in air quotes, owners, even if they had had escaped to a free state. Mm -hmm. So if you had been enslaved in Mississippi and you somehow managed to get your way and get yourself to Ohio or Michigan, people, the, the person who owned you could pay judges um, 
or or pay individuals, police officers, to find you and return you. And the the Congress, this law, this Fugitive Slave Act, allowed officers to create posse comitatus, like they got to get, get people together to hunt people down. And if you refuse to do that as a white person, you would be subject to a fine of $1,000, which is about 30 grand in present day value and six months imprisonment. Wow. And if a judge, if you brought that person, if you found people and you um, brought them before a judge, a judge would be paid $10 if he found that the slave belonged to somebody um, and $5 if he said, no, this person's actually free, but not gonna be returned, right? They, the, the person who was being hunted down when they were brought in front of the judge, they weren't allowed to testify. They didn't have a jury. There was no testimony. Um, and so what happened is it just started incentivizing white people to chase down and hunt black people because it was lucrative. And that was something that our Congress put into action. And so when you like fast forward to like Ferguson, Missouri um, and the Department of Justice finding in 2015 that almost every single branch of government there was being paid for and subsidized by the millions of dollars in fines and fees that were being paid by the black people who live there um, for tickets and fines. And that, that those revenues were actually just satisfying the government's coffers instead of public safety needs. You just start to understand that we live in a country where you can't separate out criminal justice and criminality from a money-making um, situation. And now it's turned into like how much people make off of mass incarceration or, you know, we're still in, in a world where people are making money off of things like parking tickets and bike licenses, as you might've heard recently ha happened in New Jersey. So it's rigged and it's rigged to be a fiscally you know, lucrative endeavor, and it's working exactly as it was supposed to. Such wisdom. Thank, thank you for that that history lesson. So many, so many things both of you are sharing. I'm just like, wow, I didn't know that. Didn't know that. Didn't know that. So, thank you both so much. Um, so, CJ, I'm gonna start with you with this question, and I think that you you kind of alluded to it before, but this question is more focused on not the the scene. Uh, racism that is seen throughout the justice system. I mean, may maybe some people still think that those those stats are hidden, but I don't as an African-American woman. What are some ways that you have seen hidden racism show up in the justice system? Maybe some things that no one would even realize are, um, are, are still plaguing our judicial system today. Yeah, it's... It's difficult for me to put it, to think about it in that way, I suppose. Um, because to me, it's so much of it is so obvious, um, but it's more than just about stats, but like how the stats come to be. You know, I, uh, Karen and I both just argued a case recently about pretextual stops. Um, and it's something that, you know, police officers can make pretextual stops and because police officers have either explicit bias or implicit bias, which we, you know, everybody has implicit biases. Um, you know, there, we have, as Karen alluded to, long criminalized um, 
Black people in this country. And so the implicit bias would be that there's, you know, something suspicious um, about a Black motorist if they're pulled over or when you see them or if they're driving through certain neighborhoods or they have certain cars. Um, and so we have terrible case law that allows police officers to pull someone over um, for a pretextual reason. And what that means is if if their real reason that they want to pull someone over is either due to an explicit bias and implicit bias, or the fact that they want to conduct a criminal investigation of that person, but the Constitution wouldn't otherwise allow them to stop them to do so, all they have to do is then look for some sort of violation that they can believe that the person reasonably is committing. And so in this case that Karen and I both argued, the violation um, was a license plate uh, obstruction. And in the two cases in particular, um, the license plate, the words garden state on the bottom of a license plate was just barely, 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 barely covered up, right? But the state argued and successfully, um, so at the trial court level and in one of the cases at the appellate division that like the statute says you can't cover up any portion of your license plate. So the fact that like the teeny tiny tip of the bottom of the words garden state was covered up was a legitimate reason to stop the motorist and therefore um, turned into, you know, a search of a vehicle and, and, and um, a prosecution. And so those are things I think it's not hidden because it's obvious in all of the statistics when you look at the traffic stop data that people of color are disproportionately stopped. But I think it's hidden to, to in a way that most people aren't aware that that's what the case law allows and that police have so much discretion or even that these laws are on the books that um, give police basically unfettered discretion to decide who to pull over and who not to pull over. And, you know, the bike example, bike license example is, is another one of those that most people don't even know that law exists and it's not being enforced except for when police officers want to enforce it on certain people because they really want to harass someone or arrest them or uh, engage in some sort of criminal investigation of them. Karen, what would you say are some hidden ways that racism shows up in the justice system? Um, I I mean, I, I co-sign exactly with what CJ said. And I, I think um, before getting to the ACLU, I was a senior staff attorney at the Innocence Project for seven years. And so working there, there were some, there were things that were being revealed in all of those cases that I don't think a lot of people see. I mean, you, you hear about exonerations and it's like, yay, like that's great. Someone's gone and it, it's good, but we don't really talk about what it, what happens to get people there. And, you know, first of all, innocent black people are seven times more likely to be wrongfully convicted of murder than innocent white people. And part of the reason for that is police misconduct. Um, cases of black people being exonerated for wrongful convictions were 22% more likely to involve police misconduct than with white defendants. And that goes to just bigger questions about police behavior that we don't necessarily talk about and we certainly don't see and we definitely don't see in New Jersey where those kind of records and access to um, violative behavior by police just isn't available in the public eye, even though it leads to these really tragic, tragic um, end results. Um, 
we we just don't necessarily question the behaviors that create the cases. And so whether that goes to how people are testifying and whether they're being truthful on the stand or whether they're doing things with evidence that they shouldn't be doing, there's things that are very much about the kind of basic investigative um, abilities of law enforcement that are really kind of skewed and aren't necessarily being taken to task when um, that behavior is just unlawful or wrong. And so um, I think one of the great things about organization, innocence organizations um, like the Innocence Project is they do kind of shine light on those dark places. And you might've heard that even very recently um, they sent a letter to district attorneys in Manhattan and Brooklyn asking that they free and, and reverse over 3000 sentences stemming from police conduct of three detectives who've been shown to plant evidence, um, uh, pay off people to, to testify falsely and all sorts of you know bad behavior. And I don't think that that's necessarily um, so exceptional I think that it happens way more than we would like it to and, and way more than we tend to acknowledge. I think it's really um, heartbreaking to hear these stories. Um, and I think you said it earlier, Karen, um, that you know the system isn't broken, it's working exactly the way it was designed. Um, and I think that the, um, the more you kind of peel back these layers, um, the more kind of overwhelming it seems. And, and it, it makes you wonder like, what is it that can actually be done to change this? And I, I know we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but um, these stats are just like so sobering. Like I'm, I'm really kind of flabbergasted. Um, I, I know they exist, but to like, to hear it from people who live it every day, <clears throat> you know, in a professional way, um, you know, I might read it in an article, but it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's very sobering. Um, I uh, was at a, a four-day conference this week, virtual conference for um, people who are in um, in-house legal departments and legal operations. And um, I, I, I work for a software company and we, we provide contract management software. So we're, we're often at these types of legal conferences. And one of the things that I've noticed um, since George Floyd's murder in particular, is I'm seeing a, a, a big emphasis, a, a, a new, I would say a new emphasis on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, but, you know, the reality is that, um, you know, the, the, the top brass, the, you know, the partners at law firms, um, the people on the bench um, disproportionately represent um, one demographic, right? It's, it's white males, older white males. Um, but I'm noticing at these legal conferences that they're, you know, they're, they're requiring like a certain number of, of diverse people on panels and, and so forth. Um, are we starting to see some change in the legal profession in your opinion? Um, and what, what do you think really needs to happen to level the playing field in, in the legal world? Um, Karen, we'll go back to you on that one. Oh, I don't want to be like a grouchy hater, <laughs> um, 
but you know, I started out when I got out of law school, I started out in law firms and uh, you know, I've been at this for nearly 20 years now. And I, <laughs> we just go in cycles, to be honest, we go in cycles when we talk about diversity and inclusion and DEI and, oh, we need to diversify the, the legal profession. And we have these conversations on the regular and I, I cannot say that anything has changed that dramatically. I, in my entire career, I have never worked with another black female attorney daily. Wow. And it's been a real shocker, not shocker. It's been really fantastic because we just got a new justice on the New Jersey Supreme Court. And it's been great to actually have an oral argument where I'm not the only black person in the room. Mm. Um, And so I, I just, I'm glad people think this is good, but what's happening is it's like, there's so much window dressing and there's so much fantastic um, makeup going on and there's not any structural change happening. And you don't, you don't diversify the legal profession after people graduate. Like if you wanna diversify the legal profession, we have to talk about law school, we have to talk about college, we have to talk about high school, we have to talk about how people get to be in the legal system. We have to talk about standardized tests. We have to talk about what it means to take the LSAT um, and who has access to take you know, $5,000 tr- classes and get tutors and who doesn't, right? And so, um, you know, bias shows up at every phase of the system and that includes public defenders, it includes prosecutors, it includes judges. And um, having three people on a panel isn't gonna do it. That being said, that being said, anytime we're having really frank conversations about how people can make room and when we have conversations about how the system impacts people, when we are frank, about what we bring to our practice, we can change systems because awareness is, is, is half of the battle. And I, um, you know, I, 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 I'm not someone who's like, oh, I'm calling this person out. Like they didn't say anything right. They did, they did this wrong. Like, obviously there's things that are <laughs> really frustrating. There's like ignorance, that's ignorance. But I want to make real change and that's going to require a little bit of generosity so I think I mean to answer the question I don't think we are doing enough but I think that awareness of it and trying to put a few um holes in that wall are that's welcome and good yeah I I uh, definitely would agree with you I you know I think there is a lot of window dressing and I I I sense there's a lot of um, performative action out there. And um, I was curious because you guys are a little bit more on the inside, you know, what, what you think is actually happening there. CJ, what are, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah. I'm, I mean, Karen really nailed so much of it. There's pipeline issues about who goes to law school, but then, you know, once you enter the profession, 
you know, I, I think there's a heavy focus on diversity, diversifying and hiring and hiring more people of color, hiring more women. And inclusion um, is really an important part of that because what we know is like, uh, I, I believe it's like 50 to 52% of lawyers now are, uh, are law students, graduating law students are women. So we've worked on the gender equity um, and gotten there with regard to law school graduation rates. But then when the, the attrition of women in the legal practice drops off significantly, and you know, I think it's it's fewer than like 20% of equity partners at law firms are women. Right. Um, and there's so many different reasons for that. Uh, and the numbers are far worse when you look at uh, people of color. Um, you know, so it's one of those, like, like Karen said, I, I think we've moved to a place in society where it's hard to have tough conversations sometimes. Um, but I think we do have to be generous and recognize when someone's trying and coming from a good place. Um, and we have to have those conversations in law firms and, uh, and they're difficult conversations to have, but the representation is is important, not just for the social justice and equality part of it for the lawyers themselves, but for the clients um, and the cases and the case the case law that you're developing and all of that needs to be informed by more than just a white male or white female lens. It you know it, it's important that it's there. So there, this isn't. These aren't new conversations. They have been going on a very long time. Um, you know, there's this people doing some creative thinking at my law firm. I have been researching some of this for our own diversity work. And um, there's this group called the Diversity Lab, I think it is. And they created this rule called the Mansfeld Rule. Um, and what their studies had shown was that a big problem with law firm recruiting and diversity issues was that um, often the candidate pool wasn't diverse. And so if you don't have a diverse candidate pool, then if you're not going to you have zero chance of hiring a diverse candidate. And so they put together this, they had this forum and they put together this idea where um, law firms would sign up for this pilot program and they would, uh, it's called the Mansfeld rule, and they would agree that to commit to diversifying their candidate pool. So they would commit to, I think the number was like 30% um, of, of every job that they were going to hire, that they would try to have 30% of their candidates be diverse and diverse in their terms included women. Um, so 30% of the candidates had to be not white men, basically. And, you know, I think they're on their like fourth round of doing this pilot program. And they've seen the law firms that participate have seen and have reported that, you know, as a result that I think it was like 80% of them hire diverse candidates more frequently because they're the Mansfield rule um, stats showed that when diverse candidates and women candidates were actually given the interview um, that they had, a, they were good candidates and they had a good shot at getting the job. So, um, you know, those are some of the things that we're think, working on in our firm. Um, when you only hire by word of mouth and referrals, that can be very problematic because often people that have connections um, to the white male partners at law firms are other white, the children of other white men. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so it's just this, 
I don't know the way out. I think there's a teeny tiny little bit of progress, but I think it's good that people are talking about it. Um, and, and that it's so important that we achieve some progress. And ultimately, I think corporations and clients are going to need to drive it more. Um, and honestly, I think corporations and clients have driven a lot of it as it is, um, because some of the corporations have implemented outside council guidelines that won't consider law firms unless they have strong diversity uh, programs at their firms and are seeing results. So, CJ, you are uh, spot on when you say that the, the referrals are typically going to be from people that look like you. And there is a um, implicit bias activity, interactive activity, where you, it's called circle of trust. And when you list out the people that are in your circle of trust, you realize that they look like you, they um, are in the same, they're the same gender, they're the same race, they're the same uh, sexual identity. And it's, it's really interesting. So the referral process is not the answer. You're absolutely right. And Karen, this, many of the things that you touched on just enlightens me and highlights the, the parallels that the justice system has with the healthcare system. And many of the things you, you talked about, you talked about standardized tests. And I am somebody that took the MCAT a few times. And I was also somebody that needed that assistance because I was not a great test taker. I needed that assistance, but I couldn't afford it. And it just, I mean, you just, uh, so many other things that you said, there are just so many different parallels. And Becky and I continue to say that there's injustice in so many of the different systems across our, across our country um, and, and across the world, frankly. So we're going to um, shift gears a little bit now. And I want to ask about how, um, let's talk about the, the disparities, particularly in sentencing, sentencing based on skin color. Karen, what, what are your thoughts on that topic? Oh, <laughs> um, it's profound. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, when we talk about systemic things, this is one of the systemic things. And I, here's where I, really come down a little bit harshly on the prosecutors because the fact of the matter is that um, prosecutors' decisions, when they initially decide how and whether to charge people, um, it's an exercise of discretion, right? And so what we've seen is that black defendants face significantly more severe charges than white defendants. And that's even after you control for, you know, the characteristics of the offense, uh, the criminal history, the defense counsel, the, the age, the education of the offender, all of those things, you still see prosecutors giving black defendants harsher sentences. Um, and, you know, that's only exacerbated by the fact that there's sentencing enhancements um, under like three strikes rules and habitual offender laws. So, you know, you might want, you might want to not impose those enhancements, right? But then you end up giving people a two strikes sentencing scheme and then guess who's gonna get the worst of that when we're talking about um, kind of nonviolent offenses. And what happens is you start to see um, people getting life without parole 
for ridiculously tiny and um, nonviolent crimes. And that's how we get these disparities in prisons um, that CJ talked about earlier. And yes, New Jersey does lead um, th those terrible numbers. So I think that, you know, things are getting a little bit better. The fact that in New Jersey, we've now legalized marijuana um, is going to make a huge difference. It's going to keep people out of prisons. And it's also going to create some really great community repair by um, funneling some of the proceeds of the, you know, the legalized trade into the communities who were so devastated by sucking out kind of like the gold of communities with these low level charges. And I, I'm going a little bit far afield, but it's just, again, like our system is set up to work the way it's supposed to work. And part of that is to funnel as many people into prison as we can. And we've, we've seen the numbers increase dramatically in the past 30 years, it's almost, I think, tripled since the 70s, the prison population. And, you know, I think part of the work that the ACLU is doing and uh, some of the things that I know CJ's doing as well is just to keep people out of that pipeline, like trying to think of ways to create a new world, a new reality, and to make this kind of discretionary question of sentencing not matter as much because the touches themselves won't happen as much. Again, another parallel with the healthcare system, profiting off of the incarceration of others. And then if you look at how the payment system is set up for the healthcare system, doctors profit off the sickness of others. That feels so immoral to even say. So, it, I mean, it, it continues to cross to cross different systems. CJ, what, what are you, what's your thoughts? What are your thoughts with the disparities when it comes to sentencing? Yeah, I mean, I would just echo what Karen said. She's more of an expert on the on many of these criminal justice issues than I am. Um, but you know, we see it in <laughs> every statistic shows that it, it's true, um, that there is a racial disparity in who is incarcerated, uh, I think, in New Jersey, um, people of color are like around 44, 45% of the population, but they're like over 75% of the, the prison uh, population. Um, you know, and then a lot of that has to do with sentencings um, and, and the length of time that people are placed there and the, the plea bargains that they're given. And the plea bargain that they're given has to do with whether they could afford an attorney or not and uh, whether the prosecutor um how the prosecutor uh was uh, how aggressive they were in the prosecution and on and on and on and on and on so um you know all data on every data point shows that these disparities exist so um karen you mentioned um the legalization of uh, recreational marijuana in new jersey um, and that leads very nicely into this question which is um, about the war on drugs. So with the war on drugs, you talked about how, um, you know, the, the prison population, the, the number, the percentages 
of uh, people of color in prisons increased dramatically since the 70s. So can, um, can you guys talk a little bit about how the war on drugs has disproportionately impacted communities of color? This is something we, we touched on in part one a little bit, um, but I'd love to hear both of your thoughts. Uh, CJ, why don't we start with you on this one? Yeah, well, no doubt the, the war on drugs has. Um, I think in New Jersey, the last ACLU stats that I saw before legalization, um, which I just want to commend ACLU because ACLU led the effort on legalization of marijuana for several years and then really put the resources into it in the past um, few years after the Murphy administration um, took office and then, you know, with the ballot question itself, um, put resources into making sure that that ballot question passed and also most importantly making sure that we were legalizing for racial justice reasons and that the ultimate um, legalization bill and the light and the, and the future recreational uh, use regulations will contain um, racial justice components. But the, I think the last data was uh, something like 3.5 to four times as many Black people were prosecuted for marijuana as um, white people. And But we know that there's no disparity in who actually uses marijuana. It's just that police over police communities of color and drug use in those communities, just like every other community, uh, is policed there and prosecuted there. Uh, and we have all these harsh laws and harsh sentences that started um, sometime, I believe, in the mid-70s, where we started criminalizing uh, and, and creating all these mandatory minimums for what started off, justif the justification was about violent crime, but it turned into just the war on drugs and um, putting all these harsh sentences for what should have been a public health issue uh, with use of drug courts and alternative programs rather than putting people in prison for years and years and years. Karen, um, any, anything you'd like to add there about the war on drugs and how it's impacted communities of color? I, I can't add more to what CJ said, and I would accept to say that, you know, there, there literally are five times more white drug users than black, and yet, mm -hmm. you know, the ratio of, of um, folks incarcerated for drug crimes is has black people being incarcerated five times more than a white people being incarcerated. And that's the highest differential in the country. And so um, having legalized this is really, it's going to make a, a huge difference. And I can't really underscore that um, any more strongly. Like this the sentencing and, and the disparate sentencing and the number of, of Black people, particularly Black men, who have been at the receiving end of this are, it's really, it's just devastated communities. And when you think about it, it's like if your spouse or if your partner or if your brother or if your father is getting incarcerated, all of that trickles down to who's working in the community, who is helping with childcare in the community, who, um, you know, is just in the, in the neighborhood, like physically there, right? And so I think part of the way we talk about prison and, and black people and black men in particular and prison is that they're all kind of amoral, 
you know, criminals who are, you know, not going to be missed because all they do is just all this wrongdoing, right? And, and then, then people justify that by like, oh, look how many people, look how many of them are in prison as the, as the justification. But the reality is that all of those people come from somebody. All of those people have family and all of those people are connected to people. And so um, it, the disparities and when we talk about what happens to communities, there's a huge emotional, um, fiscal, uh, destructive force with people getting taken away um, from communities. And so I'm hoping that as we move down this new world of, um, of legalized marijuana, that some of that, some of that might start to repair. Yeah, in the last episode um, we did on Black Love, Essence brought some uh, stats from the CDC about the involvement of Black fathers with their children compared to white fathers. And um, they are 75% more likely to be involved in daily care activities like bathing, helping the children with the bathroom, feeding them, clothing them, et cetera. Um, and yet there's really kind of this propaganda machine that we have this idea of sort of this, exactly what you described this like absent amoral black man. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I, I think, and that's one of those things that feels purposeful too, <laughs> you know, yeah, like yeah. one thing that I hear or like see on social media is, you know, in response to police violence, the response is, oh, well, what about black on black crime? It's like, oh, right. <laughs> no, Ooh, not that, not that <laughs> pressure point, please. <laughs> and you know what that, it, it just assumes what it's doing, what that little canard, that little like little thing that people use, it's like, well, why don't we ever say what about white on white crime? <laughs> because oh, the we fact do, we that, do on this show. Here we do, yes. <laughs> <laughs> because yes. the fact is that crime usually happens with the people that you live around. Live with, yes, exactly. And and so like of course, like there's black on black crime, and that doesn't excuse extrajudicial murder by government officials. <laughs> Boom. Exactly, Karen. Exactly. So so what would be some things that you would say um, that systemic racism can be addressed within the judicial system? What are some solutions now? Let's uh, wrap up with some solutions. CJ, what would you say? Well, so I think there are things that Karen will talk about a little, bit, a little bit more, but I mean, there's some obvious, you know, in, in tackling these sentence disparities and, and bail reform that we've already accomplished. But I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the change on at the starting point, um, because I, I think, uh, yes, we need to fix issues within the judiciary and how we handle things there but the starting point the entry point to being part of the criminal justice system is with police and that's where i focus a lot of my work um so that's why i said i would be remiss if i didn't um bring it up and so i i think you you know you tackle it from many angles but you have to resolve and address this issue of police misconduct um because the a lot of the disparities start right there with the officers on the street enforcing the law in a disparate way um targeting 
communities of color, over policing, um, the misconduct that that occurs and goes largely unchecked. Um, in New Jersey, we are one of the most secretive states in the nation with regard to police misconduct, actually. And so we don't even have an understanding of how much police misconduct there is, except for the rare circumstances when it becomes public uh, through you know someone leaking something to the media, through the officer eventually becoming criminally charged, and so there's public charges, um, you know, through through these through a uh, trial in which the defense attorney maybe was able to get some information about it, but but there's this you know misconduct that we don't know about that's sort of festering there, and it it leads to all of these disparities and all of these problems within the criminal justice system, because that's the that's the entry point. The the police officer, you know, out patrolling the streets, uh, and then makes an arrest or issues a ticket, and that's where it all begins, and it, it sort of piles on from there. Uh, and, then, and then you go to prosecutors and, and then you go to the judiciary. Uh, and so, you know, you can't tackle one without the other. And the policing is what I've focused on for a few years now. And I, I just to, you know, tag on to that, I think, um, I don't mean to sound cheesy, it's a little bit cheesy, but I, I think there's like three R's and, it, you know, it's responsibility, reform and, and remembrance. And I think um, responsibility is what CJ just said, like, we need to make sure that we know when misconduct occurs. And there, there are other things that are, you know, tied into that. I think it's also about training since police officers in the United States get less training than so many other professions. It's, it's a little bit shocking. Like they get less training than manicurists, than plumbers, and certainly, you know, um, so many other professions that are even within the same the scope of law enforcement, right? And so there has to be an idea that, that being a police officer requires certain standards of conduct. And they're, they're out there. I'm not saying that they're not out there, but we they need to be held to those standards in a way that's public and that, you know, there's some sort of accountability. And so that's where the reform piece comes in that we need to um, have civilian complaint review boards so that there is accountability to the public. We need to make these records public so that we know um, what the histories are. We need to ensure that the reform um, involves how and what kind of force can be used by police officers. And Attorney General Graywall has done some advancements on that, but you know, everything gets pushed back. And so we'll see with the bill that's going through the legislature right now, um, whether or not, you know, we're going to put some teeth to that. We need to end qualified immunity. Um, Amen. To in ensure that when, you know, police officers do violate civil rights and constitutional rights, that they have to go to a court of law and, you know, have to make their case about either why their behavior was legitimate or that the people who were hurt are able to present their case about why it was not. Um, and that seems like it's not a big reach. You know, I think if there are in fact only a few bad apples, then all of the good apples should be clamoring for this as well because it, it protects them. And it's, it helps raise trust um, from communities in police officers and it protects police officers who are trying to do the right thing. And then with the remembrance piece, you know, just to go back to what I was saying about 
the Fugitive Slave Act and, you know, even further back to the origins of policing. We cannot keep pretending in this country that we, we came into existence in 1964. Like mm. this country has a really sordid, ugly, nasty, violent and vicious history. And we are not alone in that. <laughs> like every country around the world has those blemishes. And one of the beautiful things about the United States is that we are somehow, even if it's by the, literally by, by this, like our nails, we are hanging on in this like multicultural, multi-generational, generational, multi-religious, multi-everything -every, society. We are here sticking together and we've created beautiful things. We've created, you know, beautiful music and beautiful food from all of that mixture. And what we need to do in as a criminal justice with with the criminal justice lens is to recognize the horror that we've emerged from. Because if we see it, if you if you can do the remembering, then you can do the grieving and then you can do the healing and then we can get to the fixing. But we haven't even started with this process, you know, we haven't really gone deep enough to recognize these roots. And so I'm hoping that the horror of Mr. Floyd's death and that murder will has has kickstarted some of that remembering process that now we're not just seeing that moment in isolation. We're seeing Mr. Floyd next to Philando Castile, next to Breonna Taylor, next to Tamir Rice. We're seeing all of these things, not just as individual things, but as a continuum. And I'm hoping that the line is going to stop and that we are we are going to start moving towards repair. Amen. Powerful words by two strong women. Uh, we thank you both so much for your time, both Karen and CJ, and we welcome you back to join us. Anytime. Anytime. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Heart of the Matter in Black and White. Please join us next time when we will be revisiting our perspective on the film Uncle Tom and be joined by the main star of the documentary, yeah. Mr. Chad Jackson. One take. Lotus the one. I love you, Bobby. If these walls could talk, they tell you about my life. Let's get into the heart of the matter in black and white. No second chances, no opportunities in sight. Cause dreams of escaping is boosting my appetite. What's the American dream? White picket fences, couple kids, couple bands, it's the American scheme. If you're from where I'm from, and they be burying teens and burying dreams. Really some embarrassing things. Institutional change, generational things. Systematic oppression, generational pain. Welcome to the show where we break it down for you, man. Cause if we don't talk about it, then these things will never change. You claim to be an ally, you really feeling us. But is equality worth that privilege you've given up? Look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself. Is my equality worth that privilege you've given up?